there's a like a 18 percent chance i'll watch it so i'll just tell you that now but <laughs> i do i need to like look at last chance you i also think they have like a formula one racing thing that they have like a similar vibe of, of documenting we, it. so we, we watch I, I think i'll check those out all three seasons of of drive to survive are also good drive to survive got you got yeah. you so we we brought up Bology. I want to transition into like my first topic. And I was going back and forth about, did I want to talk about this or did I want to talk about COVID? But I actually think uh, this is super important. So my first topic is uh, Ukraine. So for those who aren't kind of familiar, for the past month, everyone has been scared that like Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And I feel like every time I like check the news, it's it's the same thing over and over again. Russia's getting closer, more troops along the border. Is it going to happen? Isn't it going to happen? What is the U.S. going to do? And the reason this is related to Balaji is because he was on the Tim Ferriss podcast for a second time in November, and he brought up this concept of like, what does geopolitics look like post-Afghanistan? Specifically, what he thinks Afghanistan showed is that the United States kind of has like a, a lack of care and a lack of competence that we are not familiar with. The the fall from Afghanistan was like rushed in order to meet this very arbitrary deadline of September 11th. And it was botched. And there was a lot of, you know, carnage and um, bad things that happened. Number two, not only was it not only did it display a lack of care, it displayed like a lack of competence that we couldn't get out in an orderly fashion the way that we would have expected. Okay. The implications that that has is that now other geopolitical actors are kind of coming to the forefront and saying, maybe the U.S. isn't actually as strong as we all think that the U.S. is. And that idea that the U.S. is so strong that they can actually maintain order, not only within our own borders, but across the world, is actually what reduces tensions across the world. And so now you have uh, someone like Russia who's saying, what is the U.S. going to do if we invade Ukraine? Are they going to impose more sanctions? Would they actually escalate to a military conflict when both the left and the right kind of doesn't want that? What's going to happen? And Balaji's whole point is that when things are unclear, that's when war happens, when things are unclear. Hmm. Another thing to keep in mind is that the same situation is going to potentially happen with China and Taiwan. They're going to be watching very, very closely to see what the U.S. does in Ukraine, because if the U.S. does not respond forcefully, then Taiwan's going to be thinking, well, is the U.S. going to respond forcefully if China tries to invade us? And so I guess the point that I want to make and what I kind of want to get your take on is I feel like in 2022, we are transitioning away from COVID being like the big geopolitical event to potentially wars in different reasons, regions becoming the geopolitical event. What do you think? That's, I need to digest that for a second. That's, that's, that's interesting. I've heard, I've like heard about this conflict from kind of like a tertiary point of view, but I haven't really like steeped or, or thought about it. I think, I think there are a couple different levels to what you're saying. One is like that first implication that you discussed about countries viewing us, the, the way that we left Afghanistan and kind of that lack of competence, that lack of speed, and also the internal like uh, issues, the internal turmoil you see on, on both sides of the political spectrum in the U.S. as a signal that the U.S. is losing as like a global power. I think people look mm -hmm. at 
things like, I don't want to say GDP, but like economic growth. And you see China coming up and you have this like inevitable thing of China surpassing us as this main power. And I'd be curious if there's like evidence to that first implication that you discussed, like if there's evidence from like a military point of view that companies are like, oh, oh, the U.S. is actually not as capable as we thought it was, or oh, maybe we should like look at these other places, or I mean, like attacking the U.S. kind of sounds unbelievable to say, but like look at these other places where the U.S. could maybe be ceasing control and not be able to protect these other places, countries that we are in. Um, so it's I. I like the podcast format because I, I literally had no background. So I'm just kind of like riffing and thinking of ideas as they come up. But um, yeah, And like, let me, guess- let me respond to a few things that you said there. So one thing to keep in mind is that um, I think the U.S. military is set up to fight the wars of the 20th century, not the wars of the 21st century, right? Hmm. The wars of the 20th century had a lot to do with um, bombs and infantry. But the wars of the 21st century are going to have to do with more uh, naval battles and cyber warfare, which the U.S. is not uh, very well suited for. And the way that I know this is because I follow Balaji very closely. And Mm -hmm. um, Balaji follows a lot of like former U.S. generals who have been sounding the alarm about our relationship with China, specifically because during peacetime, the U.S. and China, they actually play war games with each other, naval war games. And I don't know how these war games work, but they're basically meant to, you know, um, not mock is not the right word, but to resemble what an actual war field situation would be like without anyone actually having to die. And China has won every single war game that the U.S. and China have done like huh. for the past 10 years. Um, so that's kind of startling. Then you think about these like, are, all of these. Well, just, sorry, just a quick question there. These, these are, are legitimate, like... I'm just trying to like understand what this would look like. This is that, are they sacrificing people to do this? Are they just like engaging in these minor conflicts? Like, what does it look like? What does a war game look like? Like imagine playing like capture the flag in the sea. Like basically what you're doing is you're, you're creating some type of warfare game that would mimic something that you want to do in an actual war, which is like you want to control a piece of the ocean or you want to control a piece of territory, but obviously no one is dying. This is basically just to keep both um, armies kind of afoot of each other, make sure that everyone is kind of, um, they don't get rusty basically. So this is apparently what happens during peacetime. There are like war games. So that's one thing. Um, And I think another big reason is that to your point, all of the internal political turmoil is decreasing the appetite for warfare, right? You have the right that's saying, hey, let's stop getting involved in all these conflicts. Um, And then you also have the left that's saying, hey, let's stop bombing all these refugees. Um, There is just less and less appetite, no matter what perspective you're coming at it from, for the the U.S. to continue being the world's police. Hmm. Hmm. That's really interesting and persuasive as well. Yeah, I I agree with that point. It also, I mean, the, the, the threat that you spoke about is like, what if a China or this other large power is like, oh, let's, let's because the U.S. is in the state, let's actually try to like enroach on that, attack the U.S., attack these different settlements. And I guess I just want to understand the incentive for those sorts of larger powers. Like what is China's incentive to either attack us directly or kind of lessen our political influence in different places like that's something i'd want to think about a little more um like that why would china want to engage in that militaristic kind of like advancement something i just haven't thought about enough 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth everyone doing some research on like the history of Taiwan. So Taiwan mm. used to be part of China. During World War II, um, the government that was in control of China during World War II, they actually fled China, mainland China, and they went to Taiwan. And then that became Taiwan. And then there was a new um, order that was implemented in China post-World War II, similar to what happened with Japan. So because of that, China has always felt like Taiwan was a part of their country, which it was in the past. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the United States propped up this new democratic Taiwan because uh, after World War II, we were concerned with making sure that we could um, basically have influence all over the world by controlling certain democracies and trying to like spread democracy. That was like what we were focused on for 50 years. So the mm -hmm. U.S. is committed to Taiwan um, remaining independent. And China, Xi Jinping, the president specifically, is committed to reunificating China and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So these, these two things are mutually exclusive. Um, this is definitely going to happen at some point because Xi Jinping wants it to be part of his legacy that he reunified Taiwan and China. Now, that could happen without bloodshed if Taiwan were to you know pass a vote and decide to come and, and rejoin mainland China. I think that's very unlikely. I think what's much more likely is that in the aftermath of whatever happens with Russia and Ukraine, China feels like maybe we can beat the US and hmm. they go ahead and they try it. And I think that's the thing that we really aren't ready for in mainland United States. You know, we're so concerned with our internal turmoil. Um, and part of that is because we have been so strong for so long that we don't actually have to think about what's happening geopolitically in other places. Yeah. And when that's no longer the case, the implications for our own internal turmoil change. And I don't know how they change, but it's it's significant, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's interesting going back to like you look at the right and they don't want to be engaged in these other these other conflicts. You look at the left and they say we shouldn't be engaged or we should not be bombing these other places or we should not have involvement in a different place. And I think like in in the future, however many decades, a century out, does it look like America receding from a lot of these other places, right? Does it look like America has no responsibility to Taiwan for establishing this? And do we see America pulling out of more of these, these places partially because of like wanting to allocate resources more to internal conflicts and internal people mm. and partially also because of like a lack of America feeling as if they have a duty to these other countries um, by nature of their size or by nature of historical context. Um, so yeah, I, it's like a, it's like a long-term trend I would be worried about. And in the short term, I understand what you're saying about another power being like, oh, look, like us is kind of weak. We'll see what happens with Russia. And if it goes a certain way, now's, now's the time to pounce or at least question the conception we had, a, had of the U S before the, the last five, six, seven years. For sure. Let's, uh, let's transition into your first topic. That's I like I, I I was not I did not think Russia would be the first topic. I love that. Um <laughs> cool. So my topic it, it's interesting. I have like I sat down and thought about this and I think I have like three unfinished ideas. So I'm going to jump into my first one, right? So cool. last week it's kind of like an interesting social one and also with with uh whatever. But last week, I mean, do you know who Nikita Beer is? Like have you heard that name before? No. 
So Nikita um, years ago made this, the app called the TBH app, right? This was an app that was catered towards high schoolers um, and was essentially this like fully anonymous platform that would allow high schoolers to say, vote on different things, like who has the cutest smile in, in our school or those sorts of things. It was all about building this anonymous network, right? So this network got purchased by Facebook. It was a large acquisition and Nikita was the CEO of this company. Now, Last week and a bit of the week before, a bunch of people in kind of the venture capital and startup founder sphere kind of around Nikita um, started building hype for this new app that Nikita was building. Um, a bunch of people were posting. They they got beta, like they they got the beta of this application and it's going to completely transform the consumer landscape. Other people were posting that the wait list for this is super difficult to get on and you have to play politics to get onto it. Another person was posting that like this application will completely redefine what it means to be in the metaverse. Um, so on Friday, uh, Nikita launched this application, right? And there was no application. It was a complete waste. Like there was nothing that he was building. What he was actually launching was this, uh, this like, um, uh, this uh, group of 69 shit posting NFTs that all had an image of Nikita's face on it. Um, and the NFTs were kind of like a first come first serve listed on OpenSea that people could purchase um, with no, the, the idea initially people thought was like, oh, if you have one of these NFTs that grants you access to this application. And he came right. out and he was like, there is no app. We, we made this up. This was to build hype to this NFT launch, right? So this was like one thing that was on my mind and then have you ever heard of this person called mike merrill before no okay this will make sense in a second i'm gonna connect in a second just ride with me for a second <laughs> so in 2008 mike merrill who had a background he was like an advertising agent or that sort of work mike merrill sat down and he was like i want to become the first publicly traded human ever so he sat down and he broke himself up into 100,000 shares and each share was $1 and he was issuing um, these, these shares out, right? I forget technically like what, what kind of allowed him to do this, but he essentially broke himself in shares and allowed people to become shareholders. And the cool thing about it is that he allowed each shareholder to have a voting kind of like decision-making abilities, right? So every two days, every day, he would be like, um, what should I wear today? Or should I take this job? Or where should I go to eat? Should I go on a date with this person? Like there are a bunch of right. these, these decisions that he would post on his website and shareholders would be able to vote on these decisions. And he would document how he would, he would follow any decision that the shareholder came, came wow. up with. So essentially I like thought about uh, the first idea of like Nikita issuing these tokens that really the only value of the to token is like affiliated with his reputation, how people see him. And then right. this like 2008 kind of stupid story of this individual listing shares on himself. And I thought I, I kind of see two things coming in 2022. Um, and I'd love right. to get your reaction to it. One, I believe that there is going to be a popular startup, a popular platform, or maybe just an individual who does this, who does a large public offering of themselves in, in the form of these tokens, right? And I think in those tokens, in terms of like a smart contract or something, that token will be tied to like an income share agreement or it would be tied to decision-making um, uh, abilities with something of that individual's life. 
So right. that is the first thing that I, I think this is the year when there is kind of like a major personal tokenization that, and I know like small ones have happened wherever, but I think this is the year that it's tied to something like income where people are like, I could directly invest in you, Robert, and I could get a share of your, your income every year as it goes up, or I could have a direct effect on um, like financially how you accrue or something like that. So that's like my first thing that I think will become a thing in the near future. And then I have another part of it, but I, I'd like to hear the reaction there. So I'm I'm so glad we're talking about NFTs because this is actually going to lead into my second topic. Before we get there, though, let's let's talk about like fractionalizing yourself. So let's start with this one. Gary V has already kind of done this. He's he's already floated this right. One of the reasons that I like V friends is I feel like it's actually a way to invest in the success of like Gary V as a person, and that's why I feel mm. so good about it. One thing that he has floated is the idea of, let's say he does a business venture and he uh, IPOs, similarly he did with Empathy Wines. You know, he could share some of the royalties with everyone who owns a Friends. He's literally said that, right? Like he's literally said he could do income sharing agreements with his Friends holders. I think you're actually going a step further with this, which is like, it's not just the company or the proceeds of one thing, but like me as the human, what I earn through everything that I do, you get a share of that. And where I think this could actually be really interesting is college students, right? Think about mm, yeah. all of the businesses that are built on, we'll pay for college. It's not a student loan. We just need 10% of your earnings for the first four years after you graduate college. That's something that's very, very standard. That's like a, that's a fintechy thing. The mm. next version of that is you actually have an NFT where that college student can say, hey, similar to Kickstarter, I need 180K all in for four years. Anyone who contributes, based on the amount you contribute, you get a you get that proportion of, let's say, 10% of my earnings for the next eight years after I graduate. That, I think, is really cool. That is something that I would be interested in doing because what I love about this new ecosystem is you can actually directly invest in people that you fuck with and believe in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the, the the college idea is like the initial kind of use case for this that popped in. Like imagine yeah. being able to assemble all that, uh, the, the like whether it's loans or whether it's even like investment. If I'm starting a startup, right? And I want to make a particular investment in type of technology, I want to hire people, being able to create that money based on me and not my company. And then have those be like direct relationships that people are putting money into. And then maybe it's the shares I have in this company, or maybe it's my income that I'm making um, being tied to something else I think is interesting. The The reason why I thought about this though, is because I think my like second part of this part, this, this topic was, I think there's going to be a major backlash here. Like one of the, yeah. one of the things I hear when I, when people bring up, they yeah. like the, the difference of like web two versus web three is web two, right? This is what I've seen. I'm not making some, some large conjecture on this, but web two, right. when you log into a site or something, you use your credentials, you use a password, OAuth, whatever that authorization might look like. And with web three, you're logging into something directly with your wallet, right? There's like this mm-hmm. immediate financial, um, kind of driven approach that you're leading to this. And I think when you think of issuing those personal tokens, when you meet someone, when you connect with someone, there's an immediate financial approach that's being added to that conversation, Mm. to the way that you see an individual. And I think the fact that we are making these relationships so explicitly transactional is very, very scary. And I think there's going to be like a huge backlash because of that idea in itself. Um, 
and I, 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 it's something that I'm also very scared about, right? Like what if in the future, because there's a the cool part of being able to invest in people that you think are exciting. You think you believe in their ideas, you believe in their drive, essentially what VCs do with startups, right? Early stage, you're primarily just investing in people. But what if you could do that on kind of like the micro scale and how does that change the way you talk with people? How does that change the way you present yourself? I just think they're, they're like very interesting societal implications that happen there. And I could see a huge backlash kind of hitting the, hitting the main conversation through this. How do you, how do you think the backlash would unfold? Like, what do you think would be uh, like, what do you think would happen? I think, I think what would happen is I, I think I could see foresee like different either perspectives or stages of this. I think one, what happens is people who say they're like that they're like defrauding their investors. So people who come out, I raise a bunch of money through you. And then suddenly I'm making decisions that would maybe be, against my uh, my professional advancement and raising my income or professional advancement in some way um, that it looks like I'm defrauding my investors, right? Like I am wow. like the Elizabeth Holmes thing, which she got in trouble for, right? Like yes. I, I'm leading yes. my investors in different directions. So I can see that being like a main thing that then becomes like there's, there's this judicial part of it, right? There's this like in court, does it hold up that you're following what your investors want? Um, so I can see that happening. Um, and I can also just see it being... I don't know. I could see it being like an inter- interesting social thing, right? Like if I am yeah. in my 20s, 21, 22, I just got out of college, I raised all this money through these tokens and I am going on whatever place I could see the value of my coin and I'm seeing my coins go straight down, right? I'm seeing the value of my coins go straight down. How do I connect that value to my it, it personal value? How does uh, that connect to things like depression? Like what's the mental health portion of, of viewing this issue? Um, so yeah, I think it's like, uh, yeah, that would be fundamentally different though than likes and comments. I think so because if people are not liking my photo or something, I feel horrible about that, but I feel horrible about it because they are not showing me affection. Right. And this, if people are, are losing value in the coin that they spent money on or something, now it's not even about how they view me. It's that they spent money on something that's dropping in value Uh. because of me. Right. So it's like it's like that other level that I think adds like a very dangerous perspective here. Well, and I think so. I think another key aspect of this and something that Gary talks about a lot is, you know, a lot of people are launching NFT projects that are just they're just trying to make money. And what they don't realize is that now everyone will know forever that they did this thing and then it became worthless. Right. You can't Mm. take it off the blockchain. And so to your point, someone who sees this new technology and they're like, wow, I can raise 200K and just, you know, promise people 10% of my earnings. I can take that 200K, become nothing. And then who knows what the legal implications are in terms of defrauding your investors? Do you have to give the money back? What if you don't have the money? Do you have to file bankruptcy? But now you have that, you know, scarlet letter on the blockchain Mm. forever, which makes it much harder to go and do things later. So I think to your point, we're going through such an interesting phase where a lot of people are going to end up making really drastic mistakes because they're chasing money in, in the early innings. I do think though, that once we get to the next phase where you don't have to be an accredited, accredited investor to invest, Mm -hmm. but there are still specific guardrails, uh, related to NFTs. I do think we get into a really, really interesting place where you can micro invest in people that you believe in. And I don't necessarily think that that would make things any more transactional than they already are today. Hmm. Hmm. 
That's interesting. I, I have like a quick reply to something you said, and then I have a question to you, and then we could we could go to the yeah. next thing. One, I think you, you mentioned how like this tying a, a I forget your exact words, but you mentioned how like tying a financial like people who are in this only for the money and kind of tasting that financial thing. It reminds me of like when um uh, the CEO of uh, Airbnb was like going back and forth with this reporter, and he was like, "It's interesting that." people like think web three is be- going to become a big thing. And they think that these, these solutions have like reach product market fit when really you're just incentivizing, like financially incentivizing users to use something. So you have no idea actually, if you're getting product market fit, if users that join it are making money off of what you're doing. Uh, so I think it's like, it, just something that popped in my head to that point. My question though, is like to your last point, being able to do like this personal token thing or have it change, uh, tried to income. I'm in college. I raise a bunch of money. It's tied to my income going long-term. You're saying that that reality or that potential reality is not very different from what happens now. And I just want to understand what you meant by that a bit more. And then we can move. Well, so here's my thing. Like, I just feel like there are so many things that I would contribute to if it was easier and I could do it in small ways. For instance, like contributing to someone's GoFundMe is actually not easy right now. You have to go to some like uh, different web page. You have to take the time to input all of your card information. And then you probably have to give them somewhere between 20 and $50 to make it even like relevant to do mm. it in the first place. Whereas like if I was scrolling through my feed and I saw some TikTok of this girl who like made me laugh for five seconds. And then I saw that like I could just contribute like 25 cents to her whatever. Um, and, and like, and here's the thing, if it took as much time for me to do it as it took for me to decide to want to do it, I would do it way more. Oh, like I would do God. it all the time. And th- the thing that I like about web three and crypto is it's actually going to provide like the back end rails to make it that easy to send small amounts of money instantly. And mm. so I think that just opens up a whole new world where it's like, there's just lots of people that I've met throughout my life that I'm not close with that maybe I met once with, but I just like them for whatever reason, like would absolutely love to give them $2 and 50 cents for whatever the fuck they're doing. Like would love to do that. I like that. I like that. I also think that is like a coming very, I, I know Twitter is working on that right now, being able to have tip. It's interesting too, because they're, the way that they set up tips right now is it's profile based. So if the step from seeing a tweet that you resonate with or you really like having to click on their profile, go to their profile, open tips, connect your Venmo, then be able to like add that or whatever the the user path is there is interesting in like what you said about being able to make the decision and make the action and have it have the smallest lag between those things as possible. So yeah, yeah, interesting ideas there. Cool, man. Let's talk about the uh, upcoming NFT market crash. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, this is something that I'm eagerly awaiting for two reasons. Um, let me first say why I think the NFT market is going to crash. I think it's obvious, right? I think I've told you this before, like this situation is akin to what happened in, uh, March of, you know, 2000, where you had five years of this kind of run up of all of the internet stocks, pets.com, Ask Jeeves, all of these things that were competing with Google. And then Google went and became Google. Amazon went and became Amazon. But basically, there was just lots of money in the system and people were investing and all these people were becoming rich. And we have the same thing right now. You know, you hear about all of these NFT millionaires and people that made millions off of NFTs and then they quit their job. The thing is, most people who are interested in NFTs, I would say 95 to 98 percent, they're really not 
interested in NFTs because they think creators are going to be able to make money or they're really interested in the community. They want to buy it and then flip it and then sell it for more US dollars. That is very, very clear. And what that means is the second that there's a downturn, a significant downturn, you have a major sell-off. Because if the only thing that's keeping you in is the fact that you thought it was going to go up and you're going to get more money for it, the second it starts to go down and you get close to that position that you bought it at, you're going to sell. And remember, most people who are invested in this, they probably don't know what NFTs are. They don't really care about the project or the community. They just bought it because someone told them that it was going to go up. So I definitely think that we have um, an NFT crash coming in 2022. I don't know what will precipitate it, but I do know that when it happens, it's going to hit hard into something that you said before. I think a lot of people are going to get really, really hurt because not only are they going to lose a lot of money, they're going to lose a lot of status and it's going to be on the blockchain forever. I, you're, you're not going to get fight from me on that. I, I completely agree. <laughs> um, I also think what's interesting is going to like if you look to the influencers or you look to the the fact that Steph Curry got an ape, right? And you were like, oh my God, I have to go out and get this. Like I'm I'm curious when things start going downhill, if people look back to the funnel that led them to get into something or thinking about where they trust their sources of inspiration in different uh, places. Um, but no, I, like I, that. I agree 100%. I think a lot of people are going to be sit there holding the bag. It's also one of the reasons why I felt very kind of paralyzed. Like I, I wanted to get into NFTs, but I could not find creators that I really like believed in outside of the V, like you were kind of there when I was thinking about going into V friends and I made the wrong choice. Um, but I was like, I, I, I was like, initially I couldn't find creators that I really resonated that were putting out things that I would be proud to have or that I would have an interest in. And then two, it feels like everything turns into an investment uh, opportunity. Yeah. And because there is zero information that could really affirm this or confirm this investment opportunity, it really freaked me out. So I think the crash is coming. Um, I, I think it will happen very shortly, especially as more people start creating, like hooking up their wallets and, and purchasing more things. So I, yeah, I think it's coming. Um, I, I think it is very close to being upon us. Yeah. And I, I told you that I'm excited for it. I'm excited for it for two reasons from a personal level. One, I'm I'm gonna mop up, right? Because you know, uh, you know, one thing that I I learned when I went back and I studied the dot com boom is it's not just Pets.com and Jeeves that went down. It, it was Amazon and Google too. Mm. Amazon lost over like ninety percent of its value, and so you could have bought it for like you know literally pennies on the dollar. So um, that's what I'm gonna do with V Friends. I think a, f a few other projects like Punks and Apes. I think they go down, but then they go back up. What I'm really excited for though is I feel like there's going to be a, a a dramatic weeding of the weeding of the herd, curding of the herd. I don't know what the the expression is, but a lot of people are going to leave that before we're talking a lot of shit. And I'm going to be able to look around and see <laughs> who else is like really, really in this with me. Cause I feel like I'm in two camps. Like I'm definitely in the Bitcoin camp. I think Bitcoin is the most important thing that's happening in the entire crypto sphere. Um, but I also recognize that there are like, you know, V friends and other projects in NFT land that are interesting. And so I'm kind of just in both of those camps. And I'm just really excited to meet the people who are still there in 2022, 23 and 24 after everyone else leaves, because I feel like those are the people that I'm going to develop the relationships with um, that are going to serve me for the next 10 to 20 years, because after the crash, I'm still going to believe that this is the the future of how things are going to be done. Smart contracts, Bitcoin, et cetera. 
um, in my head, I just envision like apocalypse or something, and you like walking through with your band of uh, <laughs> band of people. I think outside of the people, the thing I'm interested in is like what companies survive after this, right? Not not like the yep. startups building these NFTs, or that's like part of it. But what I'm curious about is like. I wish I knew the name, but like Nike made a really big NFT purchase, right? They bought a company to like help them develop NFTs. You think of the like Thanksgiving parade who put out a limited edition collectible and tokens, all these large companies running these things have made investments into NFTs. And I'm curious how many don't sell off those parts of the org during the, this winter that's coming up and how many of them are like, no, this will be part of our long-term strategy and we want to build something really special with that. So I'd also keep my, keep my out for that. Yeah, I mean, I think to that point, I think a lot of companies are doing a lot of people and companies are doing NFTs for the status involved. And once the status is no longer there, once it's not cool anymore, um, I think those companies stop doing that. I think that's most of the market. I think companies that are going to definitely keep doing this are obviously the crypto native companies, mm-hmm. but also the gaming companies You know, yes, in my yeah. in my day job. In my day job, you know, I'm outbounding like Epic Games and GameStop, and they're huge into NFTs because they want to create an actual metaverse, right? That's based on, you know, Fortnite and Roblox and all of their games, and they want to have NFT marketplaces. I think for companies like that, that have enough crypto enthusiasts that are making decisions, I think they weather the storm for sure. I agree with that. And I... The the idea that I actually think, I think I mentioned this to you before, but like Fractal.io, the company that Justin Khan from Twitch just spun out, um, well, not only is it an example of like a marketplace that you're talking about, but I just really like the idea of having, like you, you heard of like cross-platform games before, but I love the idea of having tokens that are like cross-game. So I could use this token in yeah. Fortnite and it's easily applicable to use it in um, like Pavlov, which is this like VR game that I've I've been playing with a bit. Um, so I'm, I'm excited. You got a VR headset? Yeah. My brother has a quest. Um, so the, the thing that's been freaking me out, right. Is so Pavlov's like first person shooter, right. You walk around kind of like COD or that sort of thing. Um, and the thing that's been bothering me is you control the movement of your body forward, backwards, any access with the joystick. But my mind does not mm. like to see the scene around me moving without my feet moving. Yeah. So I get right. immediately because of that, like uh, the lack of uh, alignment there. But I've been having so much fun playing that, and there are a bunch of like a bunch of games I've been enjoying doing doing with that. Dude, I think um, let's let's touch on this, and then let's switch into your next topic. Mm. I think like this VR stuff is crazy because I was talking to my roommate about this. Like we're getting very very close to an era where people are going to find so much more meaning like meaning in the vr games that they play than the life than the lives that they have right Hmm. um i think a lot of people in the material world as i will call it the physical world live lives of kind of like meaninglessness and uninspiration and and depression and i think a lot of people are going to be able to find games and worlds in the virtual realm that they love so much that are challenging, that challenge their brains in very specific ways. And they are going to find so much meaning in that, that they are going to bow out of regular life to the extent that they can, right? To the extent that they can still, they still have to eat and shower and and pay for stuff. Um, but I, I just think people stop leaving their homes, dude. And I think that that's going to be kind of like the big that's going to be the big shift uh, of the next 10 to 20 years that I don't think we're ready for. 
I, I mean, I think that is, uh, I don't think you need a metaverse to, to see that. Like you think of the way that people play, um, like any of the, the popular PC games, right? Where people have got into a certain level of achievement. They have a certain class in the game. They've accumulated a certain amount of wealth or virtual currency. And I think there are a lot of people who, if you ask them what's more important to them, the life that they live when they open their eyes in the morning and the life that they live when they log into their game. And you, there's kind of like the obvious choice there. So I think that's, I think that's upon us. Um, and I think with Metaverse, it gets scarier. I want to talk about Wordle, man. Have you been playing Wordle? No, I have seen I have been seeing it on Twitter though. I don't know what Wordle is though. Ah, I'm so happy that I'm the person to introduce you. Um I I think what Wordle means is very interesting. So, Wordle is a uh, a game that was created by the software developer uh, who's at Reddit. He lives in Brooklyn. Now he's actually at the company Mischief. You you've probably heard of Mischief before. Um they're the people who do like the random drops, right? The 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 Nike blood right. shoes and and the uh where you could like there was another thing where you could give them a gun and they would turn the gun into a sword. They had like a gun buyback program, which is pretty dope. Um, but <laughs> Wordle is this this developer who was working at Reddit made this game for his wife. And it's a very simple game, right? You go on this website. You don't have to log in. It doesn't save your stats or anything. You essentially have six opportunities to guess a five-letter word, right? Every time you have to guess a word that is actually a word in, in the dictionary in order to progress to your next guess. And what it does is if you put a word down, it tells you the spots where you have the right letters, but it's not in the right place. It tells you the spots that you have the right letter and it's in the right place. And it tells you the spots where your letters are not actually in the correct word. For, for, for context audience, I'm, I'm doing this as Justin is explaining <laughs> So uh, it's a it's a very very simple game. Um, oh, and I wish I had the stats for how many people are playing this, but it's essentially blown up. Like it is it is the biggest game that people are playing right now. And the cool thing about it is that every single day there's only one word. So you and I play it on the same day. We're playing the exact same word. And once that day passes, you cannot go replay a level. You can't go back and replay a certain word. Um, as far as I know, maybe there's someone else building an archive out there. But as of right now on the website, it just gives you that word that is on that 24-hour um, time slot. So this is the, uh, the, the reason why I want to bring up Wordle, though, is because I think, I think the, the past, like, the past year, the past decade, right? When you look at things like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, all of these, TikTok, right? Is a huge example of this. We have been using platforms that are hyper-specific to ourselves, right? We have been using platforms mm. that are driven by every action that we take, the amount of time that we spend on a particular type of content. We give them all these signals and they create a reality for us that is specific to ourselves, right? And we see this, the, the nature of this happen when you're talking politics with someone or you're talking about COVID with someone and it's seems like you're talking you're like in two very different places right you have two different data sets of inputs that have been put into your brain um, and these algorithms are driving you to think a different way i think wordle is interesting because it, it gives an example of like an anti-algorithm um almost like mm. ephemeral experience right like one part of it is that it happens on one day and every single person is doing the same exact thing they're working on the same puzzle happens right. one day once that moment is gone it's gone 
right? The other part of it is that the puzzle that you're working on is not specific to you at all. There is no signal that you've given. There's no cookies that like, oh, maybe they know this word, so we're going to give them this word, right? It's the most simplistic thing. There is no like data transaction happening. And I think this is like a really, really exciting idea. And I think the games that are going to win in the future are more of these ephemeral anti-algorithm like experiences, right? The, an example of this is like um, the HQ trivia, right? Where everyone was doing the same trivia, the same questions in any given day. I think people are, one, really kind of excited by the idea of like an ephemeral experience, an experience that happens once and everyone's having the same experience. Um, I think this driv- drove a lot of Clubhouse's initial, like their private beta. Oh my yeah. God, I'm missing out on this experience that people are having. Um, and two, yeah. I think people are kind of done with these over... You know, this is kind of just based on personal opinion. I have nothing to back this up, but I think the idea that you're not giving your information to something and there's no login here and it's kind of simplistic in the way that you're along with everyone else working on something um, is something that people will crave as you start thinking more about privacy and you start thinking more about the dangers of like the Facebook ad or Google ad targeting machine. So I I just, I, I love Wordle, man. I got today's and like three guesses and I think it, it's kind of exciting uh, what what it presents and why people are interested in this. What's also interesting is that this is very this is a game that could have been created in the 1990s, mm. right? There's no there's no like high definition graphics. There's nothing like too visually appealing about this. But what it's making me think about is that second piece of what you said, which is like everyone doing this together. I feel like there are moments in internet culture where it's not just that everyone is talking about the same thing, but everyone is doing something at the same time. I think about um, what was the game in 2017, the augmented reality game, Pokemon Go. Yes. Yep. I think about how Pokemon Go took over. I think about like Tiger King at the very beginning of the pandemic. I think about GameStop, right? I think about like all of these moments where it's like for a second, you know, we're, we're all on TikTok, we're all on Instagram and Twitter all the time. But with those different things, it, it was different because we were all having the same experience on the same thing at the same time. And those kind of experiences tend to be much, much more compelling than a lot of the other content that we can that we consume because for a moment it feels like you and the whole world are kind of like on an inside joke and it kind mm-hmm. of feels good. It's like cool. Uh, and, and I guess that's what's going on with Wordle. I guess my thought is, is this really more compelling than the personalized world? Right. Um, because there's so many benefits to personalization in terms of always knowing what you want to hear, listen to see, learn about, I feel like things like Wordle, they tend to come and go the way that Pokemon Go came and went, Tiger King came and went, GameStop came and went. Wordle's definitely having a moment. I don't think that it can actually beat personalization though, because to the point that you ended with, I don't think people care about privacy. (laughs) I, I, I love, I love that. And I've heard you say this before and I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think... I maybe uh, maybe it's just me. Maybe I don't care about privacy. Maybe I'm just. <laughs> um, I think that. I so I I could see this being something that just kind of comes and goes, and I the reason why I think it's interesting that like 
people not wanting not it's almost not entirely like a privacy thing that someone wouldn't want something that's super uh kind of personalized to them i think one when everyone is working on the same thing it's, it's the same like difficulty level it gives you a brand of connection wow. that provides like an interesting aspect on it i also think that the part where like you lack in personalization you gain with the idea of an ephemeral experience the fact that in the next 15 minutes this happens we will all do it together and the people who don't get to do it will never have that experience it's not something you recording could kind of just play back um later so i think what you're lacking in this being completely catered to yourself you're gaining by everyone being on the same boat at the same time and after that it's like the little inside joke like you have with them that that kind of goes to stay um i think that's the also that that's the same yeah it's it's similar to like an instagram live Mm. like one of the cool things about catching a live video is like holy shit i just happened to be on instagram when doja cat was live yeah wow like and then if they're only on there for like 12 minutes like maybe you catch something that no one else saw and of course you can screen record things but like i just really latched on to that point of like what are what are the digital things that actually can't be recorded that actually you can only participate in if you're right there at that time yeah Hundred percent. The 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 other thing I found interesting. So yesterday the Lakers played the Nuggets, right? And Lakers lost again because they're a garbage team. And this is like their sixth loss in a row, or whatever. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I'm a diehard Westbrook fan. That's actually really struggled to be a Westbrook fan this season. And there was a Twitter space that got flipped on right after that game ended. And Ray Westbrook, Russell Westbrook's brother, hopped on and just got slaughtered by fans. <laughs> like, it's, it's funny because normally when, like, a celebrity comes on, you want to hear from them. He came on and they were like, shut up. Like, we're going to talk to you about why your brother is the worst NBA player on the planet. And I think having those, like you, like, like you said, you could record it whatever you could see it later. But having that in-the-moment experience where it feels like you could unmute yourself and talk out to someone adds, like, a different layer to that. I think also maybe on a personal level, I feel like the algorithms in my life just don't suit me very well. Like the YouTube algorithm, mm. even like kind of my my Twitter home thing, I try to cater as much as possible because I feel like the natural things that are there don't serve me content that I have I have interest in. Um, so it could be personal do you bias. Think that's your in- do you think that's because your interests have changed recently? Um, I I don't think. I mean, I think on the whole. Actually, I'd be curious to see the data on this, but I think on the whole, like if you track someone within a five year span, like I would think you'd see an evolution of interest. Do you think on the whole people have like their three things and they don't really change and the algorithm could kind of sit with those things? Because I personally think you would see some sort of evolution. Well, I think you would see both, right? I think the categories would remain the same, right? Like I like, I mean, if you, if you tracked my, and this actually would be cool to see, I do think that in the future, like a lot of these tech companies can make a lot of money developing products that kind of show you the history of your life. Like, mm-hmm, Hey, 45 mm-hmm. year old, Justin, you want to see what your life was like in college through your Instagram stories. We still have them, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, but like, if you looked at the history, like the last five years of my life, like I've transitioned from being like very, very interested in like VR and like, actually it started with like AI VR kind of transitioned into like voice really heavily than kind of like fintech and now crypto but the category of like technology has kind of been the same right Mm -hmm. um i do i I, like the thing about the algorithms and this is kind of one of my opinions around a lot of things like i think media codes human beings the same way that code 
codes computers. I agree with that, you yeah. are what you read. And so that means the only uh, control you have over what you think is being very deliberate about like who you're following and what you're seeing on a daily basis. So I think that's interesting that you feel like the Twitter feed doesn't serve you. Like the first thing I thought was like, and I guess you're already doing this. That means you have to take a lot of like accountability over like what you're actually searching for. Yeah, exactly. And I think also the point of like, I, I think there are two points of it. One is the obvious point of trying to resist being in an echo chamber of thought, of discussion, of conversation, right? That's the one everyone talks yeah. about. Two, I also would not want to, like, I, I'm someone who believes in the growth mindset. I'm someone who believes that people change in every four or five months, like you're constantly evolving as a person. And I would be scared of like an algorithm coding myself and making myself try to add like this caricature um, or like limitation on how I view myself and then feeding me inputs that aligns right. with that caricature. So I guess those are two reasons why I also just don't have interest in like abiding by algorithms or believing in, in those algorithms. I got you. Let's transition into the last two. So my last topic is a, is a question, something that I have thought about for a long time. So some context on me, I went to a Catholic elementary school, right? And I remember when I was very young, I was, uh, I was very afraid of the concept of heaven. I was, I would always ask my teachers like, so it just never ends. Like we're just, we're just there forever. Like the, you know, it, it just goes on and on. Mm -hmm. That sounds horrible. Like <laughs> I don't want it to just go on forever. Um, and I think we're about to reach a very interesting point in human evolution where we're going to get to the point where it's like, you can have your DNA sequenced. You can take a pill every single day. And not only can we stop aging, we can just reverse aging. Mm -hmm. Like we can keep you at 25 feeling great. And that sounds awesome, right? Like I'm very interested in that kind of stuff. Like I want to feel great and be great and do all this stuff and not grow old. But I do feel like there is a limit on how much your mind can take, right? Mm -hmm. Like I do see myself getting to a point 105, 110, 115, where it's kind of like no one who was there in my childhood is alive anymore. Uh, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, do I really want to keep going? And what I'm specifically scared of and what I'm asking is like, do we get to the point where you actually have to choose the moments uh, mm. of your own death mm. because you know you just won't die otherwise? It's interesting that this question comes like a, a week out of the, uh, you heard about the, the pig heart transplantation, right? No. Really? Look it up right now. Um, a person who had like some sort of terminal heart disease had to get a, a heart transplant. Um, and he didn't, there was like some reason why he couldn't get a normal heart transplant. So they took a pig heart and they did like xenoplantation, uh, plant. I think it is called plantation where they uh, take the heart, they knock out a few of the genes that would allow for the human to have like a radical immune response to it. Um, and they put the heart into the human and they view like they, they actually run that operation. I think this was like an eight hour operation that was done in Maryland like a week ago. Um, but this, this was huge. Like this was a really, really big example of our abilities to transplant things because I mean, we've like, it, there's a common transplantation today that's like you take valves from a pig heart into a human heart. Um, but this was a really big thing of using the entire heart because um, pig hearts like the size grows the, the correct way and whatever. So it's an interesting thing on like 
Um, I, I don't, I, I'm someone who's not religious. I, I, I don't know if you're still religious, but like if you take the natural fate of someone who was supposed to die at a certain place and now by the virtue of science and biotech, you're able to elongate that. Um, so interesting that the question comes off of that, but I, I would recommend you check it out. I think, I think it like r as of right now, because people have this 60, 70 years that they're living, they retire a certain part, um, and then they they go on in like retirement. You have a family structure, you have grandchildren that give your life meaning past the retirement age, and then you kind of wait till till death hits you. Like I think that's generally what like the life thing looks like. I think when you start the, the reason why I think you're having that that like, oh my God, I hit this age, I don't have any childhood friends. What am I doing? Does my life have like what is the meaning of my life? Can I like choose to end it because I don't want it to kind of go on perpetually? I think it becomes a discussion of like, what does life look like when you have an infinite amount of time? Like maybe it doesn't look like you have your childhood ages, you retire at 60 or 70, and then you have your grandchildren. Like maybe there are stages of your life that you're only exploring things, or maybe the kind of knowledge accumulation stage of your life is now 50 years instead of 20 years, right? When you graduate college. Yeah. So I think like the phases of our life might change when we have that time scale that we're working on. And then because you have different phases of your life that you have meaning, like you wouldn't think of it the same way of like, Oh no, please turn off the lights at one Oh five. I can't keep on going. Um, so that's the first thing I feel like the, the, it, it'll look a lot different, which is why we'll probably have an easier way of like taking that in. Um, and then to the second point, Oh, the second point's interesting. Like if, if you were given the opportunity to choose when you, when you died, like what would that look like? And is that, would you like make the choice as, as a certain age and it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to change it. Um, would you maybe like make the choice, <laughs> right. take a pill and that pill diffuses over that amount of time so that at the end of your choice, the, the pill kind of ends you Ooh. completely. Um, and that's it's, interesting. Yeah. I, that's such a, such a unique idea. Um, it's such a unique idea. Like, I, I, I do feel like this is like a choice I will have to make at some point, right? Like, I don't think this feels this doesn't feel like science fiction to me because mm. I, I, I'm very much in this like longevity and like biohacking world. To your point, I think what becomes interesting is like, we're going to be the people who kind of like are the first to go through this. Like, it's probably going to make much more sense to our descendants, uh, like how life goes. But like, we have a lot of baggage based on the 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 mental models that are that come from the 20th century that we're going to have to shed as we transition into this next phase one thing that i think becomes really really hard to 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 justify is marriage right like the concept of i'm going to be married to one person and stay with that person for the rest of my life made a lot more sense when you died at 50 and i think even now we're starting to see kind of the breaking point of it and it's it's not just because uh, lifespans are increasing. There's a lot more going on there. But when people start hitting numbers like 150, like does it really make sense to be wedded to someone at 30 and be like, yeah, the next 120 years I see us being together? I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't. I don't think humans were designed for that necessarily. So it's interesting you bring that up. So right now I'm reading this book called How to Not Die Alone by this person named Logan, Yuri, <laughs> right? And the okay. book 
essentially she was like a Google researcher who I think was, um, I forget the specifics, but she was a Google researcher who I think was working in like their, the Google contracts that had to do with porn, like Bang Brothers and whatever other companies are out there. So she was like in their porn lab right at Google. And then she left that, <laughs> the, the, the porn lab, and then she started looking into like relationships and that sort of thing and actually studying like the, the behavioral science behind relationships and what they mean. Um, so she went out as having this like very scientific background of developing this book on like why relationships happen how people get connected to people whatever right and i just want to read this excerpt from this book that i i saved um that i thought was pretty interesting so <clears throat> the fading of our lust is also a strategic evolutionary move our addiction to our partner keeps us around long enough to have a baby and raise him or her together until the child is around four years old old enough to be somewhat independent at least on the ancient savannah and survive once our work there is done, lust fades and our brain frees us to create new children with new partners, increasing the chance that at least one of our children will live to adulthood and carry on our <laughs> DNA. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> so, I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think the future of marriage looks like you have children and you are with that person for 20 years until they're independent and then you go on like i think the idea that you will have one person for the uh, however many years that you you're alive is is a very interesting one and i think one that people take for granted without thinking about it because even evolutionary dude, like you could look at it as a question mark dude let me okay so i've i've actually thought about this a lot so <laughs> <laughs> So I think one thing that would actually be worthwhile is um, a new type of marriage contract. Oh my gosh. You know, one of the things that makes marriage so tough is it's like getting married is phenomenal, especially when you're in that lust phase. Getting divorced is horrible. And the going through a divorce keeps a lot of people from getting divorced because it's just like, it's not worth it, you know? Um one thing that I think would be worthwhile is a marriage contract that has to be renewed or else it expires, right? <laughs> so let's say you said, we're, we're going to be married for the next five years. And unless we decide to renew our vows and renew this contract, at the end of five years, we're just not married. And it just happens. And the terms are already set. And so I think what that does is it gives people an out that is less emotionally traumatizing than someone going to the other partner and saying, I want to divorce you. Um, it also, it also simplifies the legal ramifications because you can actually figure them out ahead of time when you're not as hurt or traumatized or in a bad state. Um, and it also gives people a chance to actually renew their commitment to each other. If they still want to be with each other after that lust phase, what do you think? Um, so there are like three reasons why this would make sense. One on the point of like not wanting to face your partner in the face and say that you want to get a divorce or something. How, how would this, would the contract be like, I, there's no like conversation about it. Like I could go to my computer and like check off no, that I don't want to renew this relationship. And that would be like the, the totality of the, the communication. Well, I think the idea is that some, I, the idea is that some action would have to be taken to renew it. But if there is no action, then you are legally no longer married after it expires. Right. So the idea there is that you two have to, uh, you have to actively commit to it. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. I just don't, 
I, I've never gotten divorced, so I don't know what the process is like. But I think to your, <laughs> to your like second point about understanding the legal ramifications, I feel like when people go through the prenup, I, I don't know what the prenup process looks like, but I in my head, it would make sense that when you go through the prenup, you kind of see those legal ramifications and you're given some level of yeah. foundation of what that disconnect would look like. So the first point, I feel like if you're in a healthy marriage, there's enough communication where you would kind of have, maybe I'm wrong about this, right? But you would kind of have an idea of, like it's great that on an annual annual timeline you will be forced to confront this issue but i feel like if there is positive communication you'll have an idea of a barometer of like how the marriage is doing um and then i'd also be curious how like when children and all the other things that factor into people staying together kind of comes rooted in this how it would affect that sort of contract so it's an interesting idea it's an interesting idea but before we move on to the last topic, your third topic, wh- like what is the what is the pitch of this of this book? Like what you know, given given that kind of a paragraph you laid out, like oh, you're going to reach a point where you're no longer lusting after your partner. Like what is this author's advice about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that por- first of all, you should read it. I'm really enjoying it. I think I'm like 34 percent through it. Um, but the that specific portion was about the fact that people over-index on certain characteristics of a partner, and they I think yeah. she she calls it like prom date versus life partner. Um, and lust is one yeah. of those characteristics that she feels people focus too much on. And then the other characteristics that you should look on is like. Um, like things like, and she explains it better, but like things like loyalty, things like how you feel, what sort of person that person brings out in you when you're in the same room as them, when you're talking to them, um, who do you want to solve difficult problems with? Like there are all these, these, these parameters that she feels like for a life partner, you would focus on a lot more than some of these, these kind of ridiculous characteristics or, or ones that we talk about. It's, it's actually a really interesting book. Like I've been enjoying it. Um, but yeah, that was that, that piece there. I think it's worth a good read. The last thing I'll say about this is um, I do think it's very worthwhile to have like a life partner. Like there's a, there's a great like Jordan Peterson video where he says, you know, he was basically responding to this, um, this growing trend of people not wanting to get married. And he's like, you should really think a little bit more harshly about this. I think a lot of people are scared of getting divorced. They're scared of the work that goes into a marriage. But he said you should be equally scared of the potential meaninglessness of not having like a, a deep relationship mm. that you work on throughout the course of your life. And I think and I thought that was actually very compelling and something that I hadn't really thought deeply about before. Like once you get past your 20s and your 30s, and it's hard for us to foresee this, but unless you have kids, unless you have like a lifetime partner your career is probably not going to do it for you in terms of you feeling grounded and feeling like your life has meaning. You're probably going to need to do what humans have been doing for a long, long time. And so that's just another thing to think about. Yeah. It's also interesting if, if we had kind of like stronger communities, more transparent friendship, like deeper and transparent friend relationships. Like if there are other places that you could find the the level of support. Um, It's interesting. I mean, Sheryl Sandberg, right, would be like the the person who you're going to marry or spend time with is the most important decision you're going to make. I don't know if Sheryl Sandberg is still a role model, but um, okay. My last my last <laughs> question is uh, um, it's not even a question for you. <laughs> it's more for myself. Like I the it's it's the question I've been kind of like thinking about, and I is this like big tech resignation like people who are quitting their big tech jobs to either work in freelance to either work in crypto to either not work there's a big anti-work there's actually like a big subreddit called anti-worker 
there's there's two subreddits that are interesting. One is the anti Reddit sub subreddit and anti work subreddit, and the second one is the fire subreddit that my friend introduced me to. That is the financial independence retire early subreddit, where essentially people yeah. work hard until they're thirty and then retire, right? Um, yeah. And it just like there's also oops sorry there's also there was this like really popular twitter thread that happened from kind of this anonymous account and it wrote this very long thing about what it is like to be in big tech these days um and be at one of these like fang companies and essentially it kind of wrote out all these these perilous things right the fact that there's this overemphasis on DNI, the fact that you can't fire underperforming people because of their background, the fact like all those kind of talking points of like why people wouldn't want to work in 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 um if you like really want to build things, why people wouldn't want to work in these increasingly bureaucratic and uh, 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 like diversity focused companies. So the question I've been like wrapping my head around is. Like, what are the real reasons people are leaving these jobs? Is it because people talk about fulfillment all the time? So is it the fact that people are looking for more fulfillment for their job? They want to feel like they're they're more aligned with their work. Their personal values are more aligned with their work. Is it that people want to work on things that are hard? Like, this is actually the idea I have for crypto. I, I don't, there are a bunch of people out there who believe that because the smartest people they know are going into crypto, that somehow gives a judgment that crypto will be viable or crypto is the future or whatnot. And I like fight back on that. I think, I think smart people chase really difficult problems, right? And I think I know a lot of smart people who are at these top companies where they just don't like it's not difficult to do what they do day in day out right and they're they're going into crypto because cryptography like initially to get even a foundation is like a hard thing you have to grapple with right um and then the other like points of is it is it kind of the the fact that these companies are coming more internally political at least it looks like externally is it because of like public perspectives on these companies that working at google now is like evil working at facebook is evil and and whatnot um, so I guess like there, there are two parts of what I'm grappling with. One is like, what are the real reasons people are leaving these companies if they're even leaving these companies? And two, like, what does this actually mean, right? How does it change the way that people view their career? How does it change the way that companies view employees? Like, how does it change that contract? So kind of like two parts of that puzzle that I've been, I've been thinking more about because of this, this great resignation. Dude, I got, I got a great one for you. So to, for the first part of the question, like, why are people leaving? It's, it's a lot of things. Number one, I do think there are people who, well, let's start with this context, right? Tech used to be David. Now tech is Goliath, right? Hmm. Crypto is the new David. A lot of people who were there in the beginning recognize that Google is no longer a startup. It's an incumbent and that the new startups are going to be in crypto and web three and that that's where they want to be. That's fine. Some of the people that graduated from college between 2010 and 2020 joined Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix post IPO. And so maybe they're looking to get their buyout, right? That's why a lot of people are interested in going into a pre IPO company or a potential crypto web three company. Now, I do think that when you become an incumbent, you become much more institutional. And a lot of the people who are attracted to tech and attracted to crypto, they just want to build without guidelines or guardrails. And so they're definitely leaving for those reasons. I think the biggest reason outside of tech, why is there a great resignation is just general existential angst, 
right? Like people mm. just don't want to work. And I think this is really, really interesting because this is happening at the same time that robotics and automation is coming online. And people are thinking about universal basic income through some type of like central bank digital currency. I think all of these things are happening at the same time where it's like, we might actually be able to have a fully functioning economy with most humans not working. I think that's really interesting. Something for us to come back to. But here's where I really want to say, this is where I think this is all going. I think we're all going to become entrepreneurs, but not in the way that you might think. We're not going to all try to go start the next Slack or the next Plaid. But I do think that we are going to all become solo entrepreneurs who do tasks, not jobs. This is the way life used to be before the Industrial Revolution, where you had a skill Someone hired you to do one thing and they paid you for it. And then you never interacted with that person again. I think that's where we're going. Where in a fully remote work, distributed internet environment, you have skills, you're anonymous or pseudonymous, you're on some platform and someone pays you to do one thing. And maybe you interact with them again to do another project, but maybe not. I think the idea of working for a company and having a role at that company in the long term. 10, 20, 30 years, that's what's going to be phased out. Hmm. Um, maybe. I, I, the, I struggle with that, one, because of healthcare. Like, the fact that work as of right now is directly kind of... And I, I know there are companies that are working on that, especially when it comes to, like, gig workers and, and whatnot. Um, but I think as long as we have so much of your... So many other actions depend on you having a stable job that is through kind of a large, uh, a large institution. Like the, you have to, if you're trying to get an apartment, an income statement that normally is shows that you have an employer. I think it, it kind of gets difficult, and there are a bunch of things that could kind of solve that. But I, I the reason I bring it up is because I think this gets pushed out because of some of those issues. Also, I think there's so many jobs that are not tied to an actual skill that someone has or a trade that is freelanceable or like solo taskable. I think there are a lot of people in management positions that it's like a communication oriented thing where your role is only there because there is a team nature and there is a coordination that has to happen that it's harder for those people to become solo entrepreneurs um, because like the reason they're there is because of the company. Right. right. Um, so I, I, the, the, the like individual task thing is so, so interesting though to me. Um, well, and one, one piece of middle ground between this is like, maybe not everyone becomes a solopreneur, but the size of companies will definitely shrink. Like I think in the, and I think what we're realizing throughout all types of companies is there's a lot of bloat, right? Like you need, mm -hmm. you need, you need, you need a leader and then you need executives, but you don't need as many entry level and middle managers as we do today, because I think a lot of that ends up getting automated. Plus I think a lot of those people end up quitting because they just don't want to work. Mm. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think automation, I think better productivity tools that allow for documentation of things that you have just seen coming on. Um, things like Loom, Notion, whatever. Like, I think all of that plays into people getting rid of bloat and positions that are only there to be there. I, I, I just struggle with seeing the chevrons of the world. Like I, maybe it's just kind of like the mental block I have, but seeing the downfall of these companies is such a bizarre idea in my head as someone who has loved startups and loved the, the, uh, the David for so long. Um, but the task oriented thing is very interesting. I like that idea. 
Um, especially as you see like these, inf- these, these uh, solopreneur freelance platforms. Because it actually, it actually dramatically changes the way you go about your career. Because this is what people still do and what we've been taught to do. The, the, the key is to like move up and, and create a, a title within a organization. That's what people basically are incentivized to do. That's what they work backwards from moving up within an organization and having a title in this new world. You, you'd basically be judged not based on your credentials and the titles that you've had before, but like what work can you point to? And I think a lot of people are actually not set up to win in that world because they're really good at playing politics, but they're not so good at like building or just providing value to people. So I think there's a lot of carnage in the wake of the next 10 to 20 years. I am in general, though, very optimistic about the future that we will see when when we are older. Yeah, value is interesting. I I don't know. I think it's hard to make the judgment of whether a like an individual position or not like provides value to a end user or to the company as a whole. Like, I think that's I I just don't know how you would measure things like that and how you could measure that impact directly. Um, I think it would be very interesting if you can log on to a dashboard or maybe when you do your company reviews with your manager or any sort of review and there was some unit of value that you were producing to one, the end user of whatever you're working on and to the company. Like, I think that would be a very interesting way to one, analyze which jobs actually have an impact on the bottom line and two, giving some sort of level of like the value of a contribution, especially when career is such a large percentage of, of someone's life. Um, so yeah, I, it's an interesting idea. Very interesting idea. So let's wrap up. Uh, last question. Uh, give a give a give a song to the audience. What's a uh, what's a what's a recommendation for them to go listen to? The thing that I've really been listening to is the Vince Staples. I was kind of late to this too, but I was listening to the Vince Staples' most recent album. And "Take Me Home" and "Taking Trips" are both fire songs. I would recommend anyone right now to listen to that. Also, one my my third recommendation here, and this is a, a song that I don't like respect French Montana as a person or an artist. I don't. <laughs> <listen to that. laughs> it's, it's not better than his album. <laughs> French is garbage, man. But his latest album, They Got Amnesia, um, the song F-W-M-G-A-B is absolute fire. And I think everyone should listen to that right now. That's crazy. You're just going to be like, hey, man, I don't fuck with this person or his music. <laughs> but you all should check out this particular song. <laughs> 100%. Yes. Yes. Hey, hey. Off town, boys, not alive. Get the bag, then I wiggle like wild. All the little things stop, big, big, big things. My little chain costs more than your big chain. Fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, fuck, fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, fuck, fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, fuck, fuck with me, get a bag. Bitch, don't block your blessings. Bitch, don't block your blessings. I'm his disco flashing, drip toe tagging, mink coat dragging, block boy trapping, hot boy in action. Don't need caption, rocks dame dashing, neck break dancing, blue miss hookah, snipe game super. She don't bust open, call back the Uber. I'm a dog, I'm a beast, gotta own, never lease niggas out, leave the freaks, smoking donuts to the street, kill them tents, I'm a strip. Can't last niggas front, I want bricks out her ass, yeah. Ones and hundreds, talking drip game, popping in a wrist game, rock. Trap money, stop all the drugs. My name ring bells, cause zoo is them uptown boys, copy cool. Up, up, uptown boys, nothing live.
Get the bag, then I wiggle like wilder. Oh, the little thing stop, big, big, big things. My little chain costs more than your big chain. Fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, fuck, fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, fuck, fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, 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 fuck with me, get a bag. Bitch, don't block your blessings. Bitch, bitch, don't block your blessings. Montana on the rise. Yup, you don't want no problem with these guys. Yo, this pocket. Drip, zip, lock. Coop, 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 flip, flop. Chain, tick, tock. Young, young players, boss. Wins with the loss. New, new, drip, sauce. Neck, wrist, false. Snipe, don't post. Mike, Mike, go, go, go. She don't bust it open. Flop, flop, flop. Back, coach. I'm the dog off the leash. Straight bombs. I release South Bronx. Here the beast. Young Don of the East. Still ten toes down. Montana, big step. And you know it's going down when I drop like Mick Grabber. Got, got it on lock. Old school to the new school. My old school costs more than your new school. Up, up, uptown boys, nothing live. Get the bag, then I wiggle like wild. Oh, the little thing stop, big, big, big things. My little chain costs more than your big chain. Fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, 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 fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, fuck, fuck with me, get a bag. Fuck, 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 fuck with me, get a bag. Bitch, don't block your blessings. Bitch, 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 don't block your blessings. Montana on the rise. You don't want no problem with these guys. Ah! Montana!